You're listening to The Diplomats Podcast on Asian geopolitics. As always, I'm your host, Ankit Pando, recording from Washington, D.C. And I'm your co-host, Katie Putz, also back in Washington, D.C. now. Good to be back, Katie. How's it going? Uh, you know, uh, it's been a crazy couple weeks, I think. It really has, yes. For uh, f- Certainly uh, for the world, I think um, a lot of people were messaging me on Twitter asking when we would do a podcast on events in Ukraine and their fallout on the rest of the world. And I'm actually glad we waited a little bit because it's obviously very difficult. I think it's still quite difficult right now to say much that's useful about the broader geopolitical ripples that this will send through the world. Although I do think we have some indicators that we can talk about today. Um, but, you know, first I, like, uh, first, I just want to tell our listeners, I think we'll end up doing multiple podcasts. There's no way we can do justice to the full range of issues that deserve discussion. Uh, and obviously, you know, first, I think it deserves saying that everything we're going to talk about, uh, you know, we're not going to focus on the actual situation on the battlefield and the horrific human suffering of the Ukrainian people. But that's certainly uh, not to say that those issues uh, aren't aren't certainly uh, on our minds. But, mm-hmm. uh, you know, we cover Asia, so we will stick to that and we'll talk a little bit about the ripple effects. So uh, how does that sound, Katie? Yeah, that's that sounds great. There's definitely a lot to talk about, but I think um, certainly after the first week of March, and where it's March 9th to when we're recording this, um, there's there's there are things we can talk about. Um, I think we should start with sort of the big question in Asia, which is the the Russia China dynamic and how that's affected by Ukraine. Um, what what do you think about that? How has China responded to the invasion of Ukraine and sort of the Russian, um, you know, isolation from the rest of the world with the exception of China? Yeah, so it's been pretty fascinating, uh, right? I mean, the context was before the Russian invasion on February 24th, just 20 days before that, uh, Vladimir Putin and Xi Jinping were shoulder to shoulder uh, in China. And they, issued a, the yeah, and they issued a very, very long and detailed joint statement covering pretty much everything the two countries cared about. Uh, you know, Russia scratched China's back on Taiwan uh, and, and China scratched Russia's back on Ukraine. Both mm-hmm. sides sort of recognized each other's legitimate security interests and core interests. Uh, and so then when the invasion happened, it was sort of interesting to see the scramble of sorts in China's reaction, because we saw sort of mixed messaging, right, depending mm-hmm. on where you looked within the Chinese bureaucracy, uh, and, and and I think this was true in the early diplomatic statements, you would see China sort of emphasizing its longstanding foreign policy principles of non-interference and sovereignty that really go back to the, the early, you know, um, the early Cold War days of non-alignment uh, mm-hmm. and, and uh, you know, have been longstanding Chinese principles, the sort of five principles uh, that, that China's talked about for a long time. Uh, and these are important to China, right? Territorial integrity and non-interference have particularly important implications for China's own interests. Um, but then, you know, fast forward now to March 9th, I think it's pretty safe to say that China and Russia are once again, uh, shoulder to shoulder, uh, that it's pretty unambiguous to me at this point that China has decided that the way it's going to play this, at least right now, until if and until Russia decides to escalate this in a way that might be even too much for Beijing, which I don't know what that threshold would be. China's decided that right now its interests are better served by, um, siding with Russia, uh, and, and, and the way in which that support is manifesting, I think, is also interesting to me. Uh, I mean, China, I, th- I think actually the biggest part of what might have made this shift from early ambiguity after the invasion began to a little bit more clarity is the actual range and extent of the international sanctions on, on Russia for the, Ukraine, um, uh, for the Ukraine invasion, which is not only unprecedented and not only delivers on the assurances that 
President Biden and NATO and EU countries had given Putin before he invaded, but have actually exceeded those assurances in many ways. Mm -hmm. And the private sector has followed up its own accord in ways that also exceed what's required legally by sanctions. And uh, that's just something fundamentally that China has always had issues with, um, Western use of sanctions against other countries uh, for whatever reason. And it seems to be in this case, even when we have what is pretty much the most outrageous and unambiguous violation of the UN Charter in ages, you know, China will vote on the one hand to abstain on resolutions at the UNSC and the UNGA, which is a good. It's much better than China actually voting with Russia. Um, but in practice now, I think Beijing has decided to cast its lot in with Putin. Mm -hmm. None of this, though, I think I think the narrative that is perhaps getting a little bit out of hand in D.C., or I at least think is premature, is this idea that, and, and I mean, this has been part of the narrative for the last two years, which is that are China and Russia allies, or are they sort of in an entente where they have their differences, but they're putting them aside or putting them on the back burner right now because they have much bigger fish to fry in terms of what their visions are for the world order. And my sense is that nothing I've seen since the invasion of Ukraine happened really changes the basic, um, you know, assessment there, which is that they're not allies still. I think, uh, depending on how far things go, China could well reassess uh, the value of siding with Russia. But right now, I think Beijing is all in. Uh, what's your What's your take on this uh, for the moment? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it is has been interesting to watch the dynamic between Russia and China. I know there have been some reports that maybe they discussed this during the Olympics. I don't know what to make of those, um, you know, but I think China's in a bit of a difficult spot in the sense that it does not like the sanctions, as you mentioned, it doesn't, it doesn't like that as a mechanism for the international community to pass judgment and try to sort of um, persuade countries to do or not to do certain things, doesn't like that. But on the other hand, the, you know, China has had sort of territorial integrity and non-interference as these core features of its, of its foreign policy. How does that apply to Ukraine? You know, what about Ukraine's territorial integrity? What about Ukraine's sovereignty? And I think that it, it may, raises kind of interesting and awkward questions that I don't think Beijing is really ready to respond. Mm -hmm. um, and I think certainly in in Asia, watching what's happening in Ukraine, you know, if you're in Singapore or South Korea or Japan, you know, you're looking at China and going, are they going to do this to someone in our neighborhood? And so, you know, I was going to ask you, you know, how has the invasion of Ukraine sort of altered the dynamics in Asia when looking at China? And how do you think that's informed, say, the, the South Korean and the Japanese responses, which I think have been more robust than people assumed they would be? Um, yeah. Well, so I think I think Japan and South Korea were in, in two different baskets, because I think Japan, as part of the G7 consultations, mm -hmm. had been sort of prepared in a way that I mean, Seoul actually caught up pretty quickly. They were initially a little hesitant about about the full extent of sanctions. Uh, they still have a few carve outs. Um, but um, yeah, the two of them, I think, have have basically played this as one would expect them to as sort of liberal democratic members of the developed world. They have used their high tech supply chains, economic linkages with Russia uh, to uh, apply sanctions in a way that I think will be effective uh, for Japan. I think the invasion marks the end of what has been a you know, long running, almost 10 years, actually, since uh, Abe's reelection in December 2012. Uh, yeah, almost a 10 year process of trying to improve relations with Russia. Mm -hmm. uh, right. Uh, yeah, like I can't see there being a peace treaty now. Yeah, no, I mean, the Northern Territories, um, economic engagement with the Russian Far East, uh, all of that, which had been um, built up under uh, successive uh, summits between uh, Abe over his very long prime ministership and Putin. 
all of that is out of the window. I think I think Tokyo is is fundamentally recalibrating. I think mm -hmm. for many of these countries, it's um, I mean, it's not just these countries, right? It's it's basically every. I mean, at the United Nations, it's like the African countries. I mean, the 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 Kenyan ambassador had this remarkable statement where, mm -hmm. basically, it's like you know, what is the value of multilateralism, the UN system, when a member of the P five with a veto at the Security Council and just invades of, another country, <laughs> thousands of nuclear weapons uh, behaves in this way, violates the UN Charter, invades another country. Um, I mean, so, you know, if there is any value in multilateralism, international law, a so-called liberal international order, you know, if that exists or not, is perhaps up for debate. Uh, the value is in this idea that might cannot make right and that, um, you know, smaller countries will have recourse in, in global institutions. And mm -hmm. so I think the reaction that we've seen from, uh, you know, you brought up Singapore. I think Singapore is actually a very, very good example of this because Singapore is sort of the classic example of a country that never, almost never resorts uh, to sanctions or to mm -hmm. sort of condemning other countries. Um, but uh, I think the Singaporean foreign minister, uh, Viv Balakrishnan, basically said, you know, this is an existential issue for smaller countries, uh, right? Mm -hmm. If the world is allowed to, you know, become this place where, you know, it, the sort of classical realist world where the strong do what they will and the weak will suffer what they must, uh, countries like Singapore simply can't survive. And so Singapore, for the first time, uh, you know, uh, implemented or, or you know, implemented uh, sanctions in a way that they hadn't uh, in uh, in a very long time, uh, I believe, yeah. since uh, the uh, the Vietnamese invasion of Cambodia. And so, yeah, and I think you saw we saw that a similar reaction from say the Pacific Island states, yes. um, yeah. which you know uh, by and large lined up to co-sponsor the UN re resolution on the second. Um, you know, not that they can physically affect or even economically affect the situation. But I, I think you put it well that it's it's an existential issue for small states if their large neighbors can just eat their territory. Yeah. Um, um, because if we let this happen in Ukraine, you know, what's to stop um, China from picking a small island country in the Pacific? Yeah. yeah and, and, you know, there were some, there were some, uh, you know, I'm thinking about the UNGA vote and there were some interesting um you know, there were some votes that caught my eye. You know, I, I was personally sort of disappointed to see Vietnam uh, abstain on the resolution, despite, mm. you know, if there's any country that can understand the situation Ukraine is in, it's Vietnam, which was also invaded by its superpower P5 neighbor that it shares a territorial border with uh, yeah. and, and fought a war. Um, but, uh, you know, again, I mean, I think I think here we start to get into maybe what we can discuss next, which is the sort of balancing act that a lot of countries are trying to do in terms of mm -hmm. the self-interested relationships that they have with Russia. Um, and I think, you know, who I'm really talking about here is India. Um, say, you're talking about India, because I think that's the that's one that I, I've gotten the most questions about from, you know, friends, family and random people on Twitter is how to explain India's hesitance to Mm -hmm. sort of stand with the rest of sort of the democratic world. You know, India, the the largest democracy in the world, um, is taking a very cautious line when it comes to Russia. How do you how do you explain that? Yeah, no, I've been getting a lot of questions about this, too. I mean, I think uh, it's it's interesting because I think this crisis has genuinely put India in a very difficult position. Uh, I think mm -hmm. it's not actually clear to me that Indian policymakers appreciate or, or perhaps they just don't care about the effect that this is having on how India is perceived in the Western world. Right. I mean, this is after the Modi government has already been receiving a lot of mm -hmm. uh, criticism sure. over its democratic bona fides, um, uh, particularly over over the last few years. Um, but now this moment has, I think, sparked a lot of very overt criticism of India that, you know, this is the most significant global crisis, systemic international crisis in a long time that sort of affects the very fundamental values of the UN Charter uh, and India's sort of fence sitting. Uh, right. Um, and, it's, and, it's, and it's not just fence sitting. I mean, there were some pretty, 
pretty, I think, terrible optics for for New Delhi. I mean, uh, India's ambassador to the United Nations was speaking at the Security Council at that very dramatic session that was occurring at the very moment when the Russian as vehicles... As the invasion was happening. <laughs> as the invasion was happening. And it was like this classic example of dramatic irony where half the diplomats in the room knew that the invasion was happening, but the ones who were speaking first didn't. And so the Indian ambassador was speaking, and he, he was sort of using the phrase, you know, legitimate security interest to describe Russia's position. Uh, and, and, and by the way, this was also a phrase exactly used by the Chinese envoy at the same time. So for an outsider, it very much appeared that, you know, forget the Quad, forget the Indo-Pacific, forget all of the U.S.-India shared values that we've been talking about for, you know, 15 plus years now. When it comes to when, when you know, things really start to hit the fan, India and China start to sound a lot like each other. And so the explanation that I have for this is, I mean, first of all, I think, you know, bureaucracies are not famous for, or at least the Indian bureaucracy is not famous for adapting very quickly to an international crisis. And there's a very strong, I think, Cold War hangover in terms of how many senior strategists and thinkers on international affairs conceive of Russia's role in the international system, uh, right? It really goes back to the Cold War. I mean, senior Indian thinkers will bring up the fact that, you know, uh, in, in 1971, Richard Nixon dispatched the USS Enterprise Carrier Strike Group to the Indian Ocean and the Soviet Union was backing India. And so there was this sort of undercurrent that India is never really, uh, you know, fully into the um, the liberal democratic world uh, in, mm -hmm. in the way that, you know, perhaps um, boosters of the quad might like to see it. And I think this crisis has sort of laid some of that bare. But then there's also the self-interested component, which I think is actually perhaps a, a much more important driver on the Modi government's policy, because I, I do actually think that the Modi government, uh, at least at the highest levels of national security thinking and, and strategic thinking, doesn't have that same level of Cold War hangover in terms of seeing Russia as this sort of indelible partner that India must um, keep good relations with. But I mean, fundamentally speaking, it's just the fact that the Indian army is sitting on heaps and heaps of Russian military hardware that it needs uh spare parts, maintenance capabilities. Uh, it, it is co-developing weapon systems with the Russians, like the Brahmos. Mm -hmm. uh, there are several dependencies that are very difficult for India to wean itself off of. Uh, there have been calls for a very long time for India to do this and sort of to fully integrate itself with the United States, which is increasingly a much greater supplier of uh, arms and equipment to India. But uh, again, it's very difficult to just um, turn those legacy systems over, um, you know, uh, change those mm -hmm. over overnight. And so India really doesn't have a, a a very good option here. And the other issue is that the most proximal Indian interest that sort of changed in what Indian officials were emphasizing after the invasion began uh, was the safety of Indian students in Ukraine and Indian citizens in Ukraine. Uh, Ukraine just so happens to be a very popular venue for many Indians to go overseas to study medicine and other issues. So when the war started, there were many Indians caught uh, in the crossfire, uh, including uh, including one at least, uh, who uh, um, one student who was killed in the fighting in eastern Ukraine. And so that became a very uh, prominent priority as well. So, I mean, that's, I think, the, the basic contours of, of why India's reacted the way that it has. Uh, but I do think it's it's it sort of prompted, I think, a, a much more robust debate than I've seen in a while in D.C. on the nature of what India really is hoping to accomplish in the international system. So, mm -hmm. um, so Katie, I... You know, we've we've talked about the Russia-China relationship. We've talked about some of the reactions around the region. Um, I wanted to sort of actually pick your brain on 
what I think is actually a very important effect and, and where perhaps China might even have an opportunity if it sees an opportunity in this crisis, which is the ripple effects that this is having through Central Asia. I mean, the mm -hmm. economic dependencies between the former Soviet states and Central Asia and Russia are huge. You have massive amounts of remittances, um, primarily uh, that were coming in the form of the ruble, uh, which is a currency that has all but been you know, rendered. I mean, it's just been completely smashed. Uh, mm -hmm. And I can't even begin to, I mean, I, I, I'll be honest with you, I have barely scratched the surface of the Central Asian reactions. I would be curious in your thoughts on the call that uh, Tokayev had with Zelensky, because that sounded quite mm -hmm. awkward, because we just had a podcast where we talked about the fact that Russian troops were on Kazakh soil just, you know, a little more than a month ago at the invitation of Tokayev. Um, so there's a lot to talk about here. So why don't we, why don't we begin with the economic piece, though, because that strikes me as perhaps the most, the more important. So what is Central Asia thinking about all of this? Yeah, well, that's that's a big question. And actually, I'll just plug a little webinar we're going to host next week on the 15th. Um, I'll be hosting with a couple of my favorite Central Asianists um, to discuss this more broadly. But the the economic piece is it's it's a real disaster in Central Asia. I mean, the the value of a, a pair of World Bank economists wrote a piece last week um, looking at the effect on remittances uh, of the the conflict in Ukraine and you know 2022 previously they had forecasted you know the value of remittances to grow 2 to 3% in all the central asian countries sort of coming back from from the covid slump um, it's now across the whole region uh, forecasted to decline by 25%. Um, and in wow. Kyrgyzstan, that will be a decline of 33% because some 80% of Kyrgyz uh, remittances come from Russia. And so as the value of the ruble sort of goes through the floor, it's not only dragging the Central Asian currencies, but it's just destroying the value of what um, sort of the millions of migrant laborers uh, from Central Asia who work in Russia, the value of what they're sending back is, is cratering. Um, and so that's that's the real and like already happening effect. Um, and then you have, you know, the effect on food prices, um, the effect on just business in general. Um, and I think one thing worth watching is sort of the effect that this conflict has on the Eurasian Economic Union, which mm. uh, Kazakhstan and Kyrgyzstan are members of. Um, Russia has been sort of prodding Tajikistan and Uzbekistan to join for years, and and they've always kind of been flirting with it. But there's, I, I can't see that happening now. Um, it seems like a terrible, <laughs> terrible idea because the value of that is just gone. Um, right. You know, joining joining a, Ru a Russian sort of economic union at a time like this um, doesn't make sense. So that's you know, the economic piece is pretty devastating. And if you think about um, the social unrest that there has been in Central Asia over the last two decades, you know, every once in a while, there are protests in, in all, almost all of the countries. Um, those are almost always linked to socioeconomic issues. So if, you know, the uh, if people were mad about the economy before, um, they're going to be even more upset now. Uh, and so that's pretty bad. On a government level, the Central Asian countries have sort of, I think, taken the only reasonable path that they can, which is to try to stay neutral. Um, there's not really a right. benefit to them if they, for example, in the UN vote had voted to condemn Russia, that would have gotten them absolutely nothing. Um, all of the Central Asian countries either abstained or just didn't vote, um, which if you t if you look at Kazakhstan specifically, is, is a very interesting and I think... Um, that was uh, that's about as strong as a pushback as you could possibly get, because uh, as you said, you know, in 
early January, uh, the president of Kazakhstan requested a CSTO intervention. There were 3,000 Russian troops that deployed to Kazakhstan's largest city uh, to help um, sort of restore order after after the protests and, and sort of the chaos that had been happening there. And, you know, there were some that at the time sort of talked about it like, oh, Kazakhstan's, you know, multi-vector foreign policy is out the window. Now they're going to owe Russia a whole bunch. Um, it's pretty clear now um, from Tokayev's uh, reactions that that if there was a debt, they're not paying it um, because Tokayev has sort of offered up Kazakhstan as a mediator, which is also very classic, I think, Kazakhstan offering. Um, and as you, you mentioned, you know, this phone call between Tokayev and Zelensky, that happened right after he, like the same day that he had a phone call with Vladimir Putin. So in the same day, he spoke to Putin. And then um, I, I believe the Ukraine call was at the request of Ukraine. So Ukraine was like, hey, we want to talk to you. Uh, and, and Tokayev took the call. So mm -hmm. we don't really know what they talked about any more than your ge your generic uh, readouts from these kind of things just says, you know, they discussed the conflict and um, everybody wants it to be over. Um, but I think Kazakhstan uh, certainly would like this conflict to end. Um, there's always been... Um, if you go back to 2014, Vladimir Putin made very similar comments about uh, Kazakh statehood not really existing that Putin made in his, you know, January 21 speech about about Ukraine, sort of calling its statehood a fiction. Um, that echoed in Central Asia. I think people paid attention to that, that, you know, from at least in Vladimir Putin's mind, the these Central Asian states were, all, were part of the Soviet Union and maybe they should be again. And I think that that's that's a concern I think people have. Yeah. Um, we have seen one last thing I'll mention is there were um, there was a fairly large uh, rally held in Almaty, Kazakhstan, which is Kazakhstan's largest city, and, and was the site of the most violence in January. That's that's an important um, factor in this. It was a it, the government allowed this rally to go ahead, gave permission for it to go ahead. It was a pro pro Ukraine excuse me a pro Ukraine rally, um, and so. At which, you know, people were saying, like, Kazakhstan should leave the CSTO, Kazakhstan should leave the Eurasian Economic Union. Um, and the government did not put that protest down. So I, I think that is something worth paying attention to, because I think as the economic pressure ratchets up, the social pressure will ratchet up, and that might have political consequences uh, in the region. That's fascinating. Um, the other thing I wonder about uh and so, yeah, I take your point that it's very difficult for Central Asian leaders to turn their back on Russia. I don't think any of them can for practical reasons and, and economic. I mean, well, I guess I guess that's really what my question is about. I mean, if you're looking at the Russian economy, the scope of these sanctions, um, the fact that even if in the best case scenario, you know, the war ends and sanctions relief is part of some post-war deal uh, with Russia um, and the West lifts all these sanctions. I mean, it's very difficult for me to imagine Western companies uh, going back into Russia, that the Russian economy recovers at, in, in any way that's going to be quick enough to really make a difference. And so if you're sitting in Central Asia, you know, you're going to look to the East and you're going to say, you know, maybe we've been betting on the wrong horse for the last 30 years. And yeah, I mean, I, I think the, the thinking is, you know, they're stuck between a rock and a hard place yeah. um, because, you know, just as much as Central Asians might be in, in Kazakhstan in particular, might be worried about Russia trying to pull a Ukraine in northern Kazakhstan, for example, um, they're also not really keen on China um, in terms of its own ter territorial ambitions. Um, you know, when 
when the Soviet Union collapsed, the Central Asian borders with China were were had to be negotiated, and some of the Central Asian states lost territory. And that that's a thing that came up in 2016 in Kazakhstan. There was a series of protests. Um, it, the short version is that the the government was. Uh, proposing and planning to change a a land code that would allow foreigners to uh, rent land for a, a much longer period of time than had previously been allowed. That got kind of parlayed into an, oh, no, the Chinese are going to buy up all of our territory. So there's also an anxiety about Chinese intervention in Central Asia that mirrors the anxiety about Russian right. intervention. Um, and so I, I think you're right. There might be there certainly will be more impetus to further diversify Central Asian economies away from those two major partners. I think that that's going to be difficult because, you know, you, geography is very hard to fight. Um, and so it's it it will be interesting to watch. I think there might be space for um, greater European involvement, greater Turkish involvement, you know, in the the aftermath. But it's it's certainly a question I think Central Asian leaders will be thinking very hard about is, you know, how tied are our economies to uh, these neighbors that don't necessarily take what's going to happen to us in consideration when they uh, sort of pursue their own interests? Yeah. Well, yeah, I think I think we'll be definitely due to track this as it goes forward. Um, so I think, Katie, let's wrap it up here for today. Um, but we've, you know, scratched the surface on this. So uh, I'm just pretty certain that we'll be we'll be back to talk about Ukraine soon. Uh, we didn't really talk about a big question that uh, has been coming uh, my way, at least, which is, uh, you know, what does all this mean for Taiwan? If anything, what does this mean? Yeah, for... we might have to do a whole episode just on the, the Taiwan question. We can. Yeah. Can and, and, you know, the assumptions about how. Uh, Great powers fight modern wars, and uh, mm -hmm. are is the Russian armed forces? Uh, you know, I, I think there's a pretty interesting debate happening now about whether the complete collapse of Russia's invading force in Ukraine is, uh, you know, what lessons does that send other countries, mm -hmm. uh, and you know, what does it say about the role of modern technologies in warfare and things like that? So, a lot more to talk about. Um, but Absolutely. it's good to do this again. Thanks for uh, joining me. Yeah, definitely. We'll we'll keep following this, and I'm sure we'll record another podcast um, on on sort of the the military angle, maybe. Well, thanks for listening, everyone. If you like what you heard on the show, make sure you subscribe so you can keep up with future episodes, including follow up discussion on the conflict in Ukraine. And if you've been a subscriber for a while but you haven't yet left us a review, uh, please do that. Uh, that really helps the show, and you can do that anywhere you get the Asia Geopolitics podcast. So thanks a lot for listening, and we'll be back soon with more.